0: From the newsroom of the Washington
1: Post. It's Robert Samuels from the Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan.
2: Hi, this is Halahe Azadi with the Washington Post.
0: Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 12th. Today, a widening rift in the Republican Party. What the FBI knew ahead of the Capitol siege and the controversy over a magazine cover.
2: On the impeachment, it's really a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in the history of politics. It's ridiculous.
1: It's absolutely ridiculous. This impeachment is causing tremendous anger, and you're doing it, and it's really a terrible thing that they're doing.
0: On Tuesday, President Trump spoke to reporters about the efforts to remove him from office. —
1: For Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer to continue on this path, I think it's causing tremendous danger to our country, and it's causing tremendous anger. I want no violence. Thank you very much. —
2: At this point, there's just no indication that President Trump is is willing to give up this fight. Just today, as part of a trip to Alamo, Texas, a, a city with a rather symbolic name, He made clear that he sees any attempt to impeach him as a continuation of a witch hunt. Michael Scheer is a national political reporter for The Post. Those are clear signals that he wants his supporters to continue fighting for him. And that kind of rhetoric really concerns elected Republicans in Washington who are trying to figure out how to reclaim the House and Senate and eventually the presidency.
0: Michael, it's 10 a.m. on Tuesday, and today the House is beginning impeachment proceedings for President Trump for the second time. What is the latest and what is happening in this process?
2: Well, the House has alerted members that they have to return to Washington by tonight. And it's expected that as early as tomorrow morning, Wednesday, there will be votes on at least one article of impeachment. And that article, which has already been drafted and, and now has the support of a majority of members in the House, sort of taking the suspense out of the vote basically charges the president with uh, inciting an insurrection.
0: And what is the timeline for actually making an impeachment happen? I mean, inauguration is eight days away at this point.
2: Well, impeachment is actually really easy to do because all that you need for that is a House vote and and all you need is a majority of House members. Removing the president from office or taking some other action like banning him from running for office in the future is something that has to be done by the Senate, and that's far more complicated. You need a supermajority of votes there. The Senate is in recess until the 19th, which is the day before President-elect Biden's inauguration next week. And so the most likely outcome there is that, you know, the House will, will vote this week on impeachment. It will be moved over to the Senate probably quickly, although it could be delayed, and then the Senate will have to juggle President-elect Biden's rather ambitious, very quick agenda with what tends to be, historically at least, has been a, a rather time-consuming process of holding a trial in the Senate and then trying to get a supermajority of senators. There's no indication right now that there is that supermajority of senators. So it's very unlikely that this impeachment will end any differently than the last one, although I think it's fair to say it's, it's a little more fluid than it was last time.
0: And I think the looming question over all of this is where Republicans are at when it comes to the prospect of impeaching the president for this. I mean, are there Republicans who would vote to convict President Trump?
2: There's probably a few, at least. Mitt Romney voted to the senator from Utah convict President Trump last time there was an impeachment he's been very clear about his anger at, at the president's actions last week uh Senator Pat Toomey who's uh, not running for re-election in Pennsylvania has hinted that he may be interested in doing that Lisa Murkowski from Alaska may also join there there are a few others Ben Sass from Nebraska who could also join but it's nowhere near the numbers you need In the House, it's also an interesting story. Last time there was an impeachment, Republicans did not join with Democrats. This time, I think it's likely to be different. One of the House Republican leaders, Liz Cheney, said yesterday in a private call with members that this was a vote of conscience. And there is at least one, Adam Kinzinger, a congressman uh, from Illinois, who's uh, suggested that he's open to voting for impeachment this time.
0: And, you know, we've heard so many stories from last week about Republicans who were trapped in their offices or trapped in secure rooms while the Capitol was being invaded by rioters, and that there was a moment of honesty there, being like, this is unacceptable, the president has done this, and there has to be consequences. But we haven't really seen those private views communicated as much in public. So I'm wondering what you're hearing about some of the rifts that we're starting to see inside the Republican Party with Republicans who are looking at the landscape right now and saying that something has gone wrong
2: wrong here. Yeah, there, there's many levels to this. I mean, on, on the first level, I don't think there is a Republican or a Democrat in the House or Senate who will defend what happened last week. There is a minority of Republicans who try and blame other forces, people or forces other than the president for what happened last week. And then there's a there's a separate layer there of... Republicans divided over whether impeachment or some other effort to remove the president is is the proper response. I think where most Republicans have found themselves in the last few days is arguing that it was a terrible thing that happened. But what we need right now is to bring the country together. And any effort to you know impeach the president in the final days of his term is just divisive and will lead to more discord.
0: But it also feels like the fracturing that we're beginning to see within the Republican Party goes beyond just what do we do with President Trump at this moment? Or should we or should we not impeach him? Should we or should we not encourage the 25th Amendment? It feels like, especially with the prospect of President Trump being gone in a week and a half, that there is this vacuum of like who is in fact in charge of the Republican Party. And I'm curious about how you see this fracturing playing out more long-term.
2: That is the real drama within the Republican Party. And these divides are not new. They go back, if you want to go all the way to Barry Goldwater in the 1960s, or more recently the Tea Party after President Obama was elected. What is different is the depth of the divisions, the extremes to which certain parts of the party have taken themselves, and the fact that President Trump, you know, while he is the leader of the Republican Party now, I don't think he will be... The clear leader of the Republican Party, you know, in a week and a half, he will be probably the most influential Republican in America still. But what the Republican Party is and what direction it decides to take will return basically back to the grassroots and the voters and it will be a fight that will last at least two years through the midterm elections and most likely You know, four years until we have a a Republican nominee for 2024, and it's likely to be a a pretty brutal battle, even more divisive and vicious than the fights we saw in the primaries of 2010 or 2012, when you had a bunch of Tea Party candidates coming up with anti-establishment slogans, trying to topple the Republican, the elected Republican leadership.
0: Yeah, I'm so curious about how you envision that kind of identity crisis or that battle for the soul of the party playing out? I mean, what will that actually look like? Who will be the people who are duking it out for the next four years?
2: Well, the the place it will matter the most over the next four years is in Republican primaries. and President Trump and his sons have promised to lead primary challenges to anyone who has not supported him. Uh, And there are plenty of uh, uh, activists and protesters who attended the rallies last week who have pledged to, you know, uh, go all in on that effort and do everything they can to primary and remove from office through a Republican process anyone who is not with the president. And I think you can expect equally forceful, if not more forceful, counterattack from, you know, those incumbents from I guess what you would call the elected establishment of the party that will remain in Washington. We saw some polls last week and among the Republicans, 47% in one of these polls said that was mostly a legitimate protest. 47% said that was mostly people acting unlawfully. It's a perfect split, basically, within the Republican Party. Wow. You know, the same poll found about one in five Republicans supported the idea of breaking into the U.S. Capitol. And that gives you a sense of you know, where the power is in, in the party. Now, that 20% is tends to be more vocal, tends to be more active. And and at least right now has, you know, the public facing among the grassroots. We've seen in in just the last few days, a number of actions by state parties or county party officials that the national parties actually had to come out and condemn. There was a a Republican chairman in a, in a small county in Nevada who posted a ridiculous conspiratorial screed on the party website uh, claiming that Trump was going to stay in office and Pence was going to be fired and all kinds of other nonsense. And, and it was interesting because after that was posted, it was you know, widely shared among activist communities there wasn't really much local or state condemnation of that from Republicans, but the National Party was condemning that. Because there is real fear that that kind of agitation will alienate more voters that Republicans will just need in some of these states to find a way to win back control of the Senate.
0: Republicans who just want to not consider them as part of the party of the crazies.
2: That's right. I mean, the, the, the issue here is that there are, you know, most Republicans in the Congress right now are going to be reelected fine if they can win their primaries. That's just because of the way the districts are drawn. The problem is that is not enough to give Republicans a congressional majority. They need to win in places where they're winning back moderate voters who used to be Republicans who were alienated and chased away uh, by President Trump's behavior. And so one of the projects, you know, the Republican leadership has as they try and reclaim the House is finding a way to sort of round the edges enough so that the Republican brand is acceptable in suburban Atlanta, in suburban New Jersey, in parts of Southern California that have historically been Republican. And if this, if the face, the public face of the party is you know, the the sort of face that we saw last week at the U.S. Capitol, that becomes a real problem.
0: Michael Scheer is a national political reporter for The Post.
1: What we're reporting today is that the FBI, a day before the riots on Capitol Hill last week, its Norfolk field office put out a bulletin, basically warning of intelligence that predicted almost exactly what would happen. They talked about social media posts referring to a war, discussing specific calls for violence, glass breaking, doors being kicked in. The reporting shows that the FBI indeed was aware of a lot of this online chatter before the riot occurred at the Capitol. I'm Matt Zapotosky. I'm a national security reporter here at The Post.
0: And why does this information strike you as notable or important right now?
1: Well, It's mainly important because a senior official at the Bureau's Washington field office has claimed that they had no indication of anything planned on the day of Trump's rally. Police were really seemed to be outmanned and slow to respond to this violent, albeit short sort of insurrection attempt. So what this shows is that this wasn't a case of law enforcement was caught by surprise. It shows that law enforcement had this kind of stuff on its radar and for a variety of reasons did not bring the sort of heavy response that you might expect when they were aware of of tips and information like this.
0: And I'm curious to hear more about what this information that was gathered, what it actually said or what it warned about. I mean, was this just a collection of social media posts or were there officers who were saying, look, we think this is important. We think you need to take this seriously.
1: So the SITREP, the situational report that we're reporting on, does largely refer to social media posts. It talks about an online thread mentioning these various threats. And the Bureau had already, you know, taken some criticism because these threats being online, the public rightfully said, how could you have not have been aware of this? This was all planned in the open on the internet. What, what this sort of drives at, though, is like some people in the bureau were alarmed. They're flagging this to their investigators. Hey, we're seeing this online. This is alarming. But management is sort of saying, oh, I don't know. They just didn't move in a sort of aggressive response, even though violence was specifically referenced online.
0: And that seems like the question that we keep coming back to is, why weren't these threats taken more seriously earlier on? And what is your sense of the answer
1: to that? I think there are some tough questions going on and tough conversations going on inside the FBI right now about that very topic. And I think the reason is sort of mixed. Part of it, surely, is the FBI thought— well, these guys haven't shown an incredible propensity to riot at other Trump rallies. They just didn't take them as seriously. Now, it's clear this was the wrong decision, but they didn't take them as seriously as they took, say, the racial justice protests in June. And I think there's some internal soul-searching about why that might be. Are they just sort of more trusting of white people and and see when white people are making threats online? Well, it's just not so serious. I think another element is definitely that they were scarred by the events of June. They took a lot of criticism for being very heavy-handed with protesters, and they wanted to avoid a repeat of that. And I think there's some school of thought that if we put too many police out there, we'll sort of antagonize uh, demonstrations Though interestingly, they did not feel that way in June. They just sort of brought the heavy. And then I think there's just sort of the basic bureaucratic reasons that stall responses all the time. You know, they saw these threats online, but couldn't figure out who these guys were online. There is a lot of chatter online. Most of it is probably not serious. And so they just dismissed it as, you know, Twitter posts and Reddit posts and and stuff that would never come to fruition.
0: So do we know whether this information was actually communicated to people here, to higher ups?
1: Yeah. So even though this sit-rep just came out of the Norfolk field office, and Norfolk isn't that far from D.C., but, you know, people might argue, oh, this was just some FBI office in Virginia. This doesn't represent the considered view of the FBI. But this memo was briefed to officials in the Washington field office. So that means officials here, those who would be in charge of responding to what was going to happen at the Capitol here, did know about this.
0: But then there's also this question of why is it that the FBI isn't being more public about what it knew and essentially the mistakes that were made in the process of preparing for the events of last week. So what is your sense of, I mean, are they trying to like cover this up or make their role in this less apparent?
1: The FBI has taken a lot of criticism since the events of last week for not being as out front as many people would like them to be. We haven't seen, for example, a televised briefing with the FBI director, Chris Wray, or even the deputy FBI director, David Bowditch. One of the reasons we thought this story was important, too, is because the Bureau has participated in briefings, mainly those have been led by officials in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, but at one of those briefings, an FBI official said we really had no indication of anything planned for this day when the results would be counted other than protected First Amendment activity. And our reporting shows, well, boy, that seems pretty specious. You know, these posts online were menacing. It wasn't just we're demonstrating for Trump. It wasn't even as broad as we're taking to the streets, which would clearly be okay First Amendment protected activity. So that's one of the reasons we think this story is so important, is to hold the Bureau accountable for these statements by, you know, its top officials, albeit not the top official saying, well, we just we just didn't expect this.
0: And do you think that the FBI is going to be held accountable for that?
1: Look, I think they're facing a lot of public criticism. Chris Wray was on the hot seat in the Trump administration long before this. So does this spur President Trump to do something with him? I mean, President Trump had been talking about firing the FBI director even before the election. Biden could come in and do that. Now, generally, FBI directors are appointed to 10-year terms, and it takes really egregious misconduct to oust them because doing so is seen as inherently political. But the Bureau has tough questions to answer here, and they'll have another test just in gosh, in about a week's time with the inauguration and the days leading up to the inauguration. So we'll see if the steps they didn't take on January the 6th inform how they handle January the 20th and the days leading up to that.
0: And what about the prosecution or the arrest and prosecution of the people who participated in these riots? Can we feel confident that the FBI and the Department of Justice are doing what needs to be done to be able to hold these people to account?
1: They have pretty aggressively gone after people who were inside the Capitol. There's been a couple of things that have happened on that front. One, you have this vigorous social media effort where even outside of law enforcement, just hobbyists and reporters and Internet sleuths are identifying people from the myriad pictures that are circulating of those inside the Capitol. And it does seem like when anybody who was in there gets even a modest amount of social media fame, pretty soon the FBI is at their door you know, taking them in. So the FBI has slowly but steadily arrested and charged people who were found to be inside the Capitol. Law enforcement has taken some criticism in that these people were allowed to leave, right? Like this effort is only necessary because Capitol Police on the scene didn't zip tie or handcuff these people as they were there. Though, because there is so much video of the incident, a lot of these folks have been getting charged. And what law enforcement, I think, is still Still trying to understand is what were the broader conspiracies with respect to this event? Is this just a bunch of individual actors who on their own, want to cause mayhem. We know that law enforcement, because of pipe bombs left in the area, because of you know photographs of a guy holding zip ties, or investigating whether there was more nefarious intentions here to kidnap or kill lawmakers. You know that's a question that law enforcement still is seeking to answer, and one that will probably be difficult to answer because. In most instances, if there's a conspiracy, it's hard to prove because conspirators in a crime don't write it down. This group isn't maybe your typical group of criminals because they were so willing to broadcast themselves on social media doing crimes. So um, maybe law enforcement will find evidence of this, but it's a big, complicated process. (laughs) I do think that is one thing, as I talk to prosecutors across the country, FBI agents, there does seem to be real momentum behind arresting people, you know, um, and they have steadily made progress on that.
0: Matt covers the Justice Department for The Post. On Tuesday afternoon, officials from the Justice Department and the FBI took questions from reporters on the ongoing investigation into the events of January 6th.
2: I know you talked about intelligence leading up to the day before, or, or leading up to the day of the riots, but there are some specific reports out that there was, a, you know,
0: at least one report out of FBI in Norfolk that painted a pretty grim picture. Um, can you confirm that, and, and were, were authorities on the Hill, uh, you know, really ready for what was coming at them? Stephen D'Antuano, assistant director of the FBI Washington Field Office, defended the agency. He said that they took the proper steps in response to the information they had at the time.
2: That was a thread on a message board um, that was not attributable, it was being attributable to an individual person. We, like I said in my statement, we deal with specifics and facts. Um, that information, when my office and uh, Washington Field Office received that information, we... Um, briefed that within 40 minutes to our um, law enforcement partners, our federal state and law enforcement partners, that we had on our command post. It got ingested into the JTTF system uh, and was, again, shared with all our law enforcement partners through that process that we have. Um, and that's, that's the action that we took on that. Um, and that's it.
0: And now, one more thing from The Post's senior critic-at-large, Robin Gavon.
3: Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is on the February cover of Vogue magazine. When people saw the image of Harris, there was a murky sense of, that's just not right, that's not a good cover. Most people really think about the print edition as the official cover. And on that one, she is dressed very informally. She's wearing sort of a Nespresso colored blazer and black trousers that are cropped at the ankle. And she's also wearing the Converse sneakers that sort of became uh, a bit famous when she was on the campaign trail. And she's standing against uh, a pink and green fabric backdrop, which is meant to reference her sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha. And while certainly you can debate whether or not you like the style of the photographer or the lighting, The the real disappointment was that in the mind of many people, Harris did not seem to have been given the stature, accoutrements of the power that she would soon be stepping into. There was a sense that before she had, you know, assumed the role that so many were looking at to celebrate She had sort of been stripped of that celebration. She'd been stripped of all of the sort of pomp and circumstance that surrounds that and that uh, a lot of women and Black women, women of color, have really been looking forward to and working towards The magazine essentially said that their thinking in choosing that as the cover image was that they felt it was um, an optimistic, uh, approachable, down-to-earth image, and that it sort of reflected what was needed in this moment. But I do think that one of the aspects that was overlooked is really sort of the complicated history that relates to the ways in which black women have often been disrespected or you know refused their due. I think the larger question is really is that the cover image is that the image that is sort of the introductory remarks about this person. Or is that a photograph that is better suited for inside the magazine, better suited as a secondary thought about this person, better suited as a kind of follow up to the introduction? I would argue that it's that it's the latter. It's a photograph that shouldn't uh, lead the conversation, but should add to it.
0: Robin Gavon is senior critic-at-large for The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. There's a lot of fast-moving news right now. For the latest on these stories and others The Post is following, go to WashingtonPost.com.